why did elements of the U.S. national security state defy Kennedy's Vietnam withdrawal plans and immediately escalate the war after his assassination? What drove civil rights and black radical groups to oppose the Vietnam War before anyone else in America? What were the notable failures in journalistic coverage of the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the overall Vietnam War? How did the victors of the Vietnam War come to be a conquered country? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, on the date marking the anniversary of the start of America's ground war in Vietnam, we review some of the underexplored aspects of the war. We hear from Professor Peter Dale Scott about the role of the deep state. We'll hear from Abiyomi Azikiwe about the role of black liberation movements in fostering opposition to the war. Barry Zwicker offers some thoughts about media coverage from the Gulf of Tonkin to the U.S. withdrawal. And we'll hear from Professor Michelle Chosodovsky about the decline of Vietnamese sovereignty in the wake of its victory over the U.S. four decades ago. On this week's program, Vietnam Anniversary a legacy of resistance, deception, and human tragedy. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 8th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabeg Akin, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Late on March 3rd, battle tanks of the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, shelled positions of the Syrian Arab Army, or SAA, near Kars Nafal and Jubata al-Kashab in the province of Kunetra. Local sources said that the Israeli attack did not inflict casualties and revealed that these SAA positions remain empty most of the time. Following the attack, multiple Israeli warplanes, helicopters, and Unmanned aerial vehicles were spotted flying over the Israeli-occupied part of the Golan Heights. A previous IDF strike in this area took place on February 11th. Then the attack targeted a Kunetra city hospital and an SAA position near Jubata al-Kashab, causing no casualties. That comes from a report under the headline, Video Israel Delivers More Strikes on Syria by South Front, posted March 6th. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence's call on all Lima Group members to freeze the assets of Venezuela's oil company PDVSA and restrict visas for Venezuelan officials did not happen. Washington, on the other hand, has issued sanctions on the governors of four Venezuelan states. Ramon Carizales, the governor of the Venezuelan state of Apure, who had previously served as vice president of Venezuela, Jorge Garcia Camero, the governor of the state of Vargas, who previously served as the head of the Venezuelan army and minister of defense. Rafael Lacava, governor of the state of Carabobo. And Omar Prieto, the governor of the state 
of Zulia. Additional sanctions on six Venezuelan military personnel were announced later. In terms of escalation ladder, it is important to keep in mind what is at the end of that ladder for the U.S. There is the world's largest estimated oil reserves located in the Orinoco Belt, which runs along the Orinoco River from the central state of Guarico all the way into the Atlantic. That comes from the article, Washington's Escalation to Venezuela's Oil, by Nino Pagliccia, posted March 6th. The colonized regimes anticipate the needs and demands of Washington and introduce resolutions on their behalf in regional organizations. In the case of Venezuela, they promote and organize regional bloc like the Lima Group to promote U.S.-led intervention. As Washington proceeds to destabilize Venezuela, the colonized allies recycle U.S. mass media propaganda and offer sanctuaries for opposition defectors and refugees. In sum, the recolonized elites facilitate domestic plunder and overseas conquests. Venezuela's success in resisting and defeating the U.S. drive for reconquest is the result of nationalist and socialist leaders who reallocate private wealth and redistribute public expenditures to the workers, peasants, and the unemployed. That comes from the article, The Recolonization of Latin America and the War on Venezuela, by Professor James Petrus, posted March 6th. The editor here, various journalists and contributors, along with Global Justice to the Tax Justice Network, have been screaming for financial regulation because the banking industry is seriously damaging Britain, its prospects, and place in the world. The head of the National Crime Agency warns year after year of the economic and political threats that industrial-scale financial crime presents to Britain. And yet, over the last 40 years or so, Britain's economy and its failing tax system have been completely reconfigured to serve the interests of the rich who have offshored their wealth to ring-fence it away from contributing to the country of its extraction. No one, though, it seems, is prepared to fully challenge the sheer power of the City of London. The non-publication of the Sperry report by the mainstream media that lays bare the realities of this monumental crime is surely evidence of that. That comes from the article, City of London, the shocking study no mainstream media outlet dared to publish, by Robert Woodward, posted March 6th, originally published at True Publica. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. March 8th marks the anniversary of the first U.S. troop arrival in Vietnam as part of a combat mission that would span the next decade and shatter America's sense of invulnerability and moral certitude. The unusual escalation of the war leading up to the 1965 invasion is of particular interest and evokes questions of who or what was driving the conflict and why. For a closer look at the motives of America's secret government in prosecuting the conflict, the Global Research News Hour reach out to Professor Peter Dale Scott. Professor Scott is a former Canadian diplomat and English professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a leading scholar on America's secret government. He's also a poet, writer, and researcher. His books include The War Conspiracy, JFK 9-11, and The Deep Politics of War. 
deep politics and the death of JFK, and the American deep state, Wall Street, big oil, and the attack on U.S. democracy. We began our conversation with an overview of U.S. involvement in the Southeast Asian region. From the second half of the 1950s under Eisenhower, there had been a buildup of pressure for America to assert itself militarily in the Third World, and there were bureaucratic reasons for this because the army needed a role that Eisenhower uh, believed in massive retaliation because it was cheap. You have a lot of nuclear weapons, and if Russia does something anywhere, will you just make it clear that your reaction will be nuclear? Uh, it needed a mission, and they pushed very hard at first in Laos and then also in Cuba, and uh, didn't get what they wanted, so that that's by default, and they wanted Vietnam. There were also economic reasons, because uh, uh, Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia, was a, a source of oil and other other minerals, gold and copper. They knew about the what became, I think, the world's largest gold and copper mine, in uh, West Papua, uh, they knew about that already in the late 50s. And then increasingly in the early 60s, before with the uh, before 1965, they were aware of oil in the offshore waters of Cambodia and Vietnam. So that added to the pressure, and mobile in particular, mobile oil, which is now uh, part of Exxon, uh, they were short on uh, foreign oil reserves, and so they were lobbying very overtly uh, for for the uh, U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. And um, one of their employees, a man called William Henderson, wrote a book uh, on this topic. But William Henderson, he was also part of the American Friends of Vietnam, which was a lobby for intervention. But I think much more significantly, he was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And so um, you, you had the army wanting a mission, and you had oil companies wanting intervention. But at a higher level, uh, as I say in my book, The American Deep State, uh, you, at this time, the kind of the brain of the American Deep State, or at least the international uh, faction of it, was the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, and they were they had since World War II or, or even before demonstrated their real influence in determining U.S. foreign policy. Um, they, for example, in, the, in 1952, they were talking about the need to do something in Guatemala, and the CIA didn't go really into do that until '54. And, of course, it was saving United Fruit in Guatemala. Uh, William Henderson was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations when he was doing this lobbying. And the Council on Foreign Relations generally was talking about the urgency of the crisis in Vietnam. And what is really significant, we see that they, were, they wanted intervention in 1963, and they got it, but also... When the war became a put exerted real pressure on U.S. gold reserves, and they actually essentially ran out in 1968, requiring 
new financial laws restricting the uh, purchase and sale of gold uh, in the United States. In that year, 68, the Council on Foreign Relations reversed direction and said uh, we need to tone down the war in Vietnam, and both Johnson and uh, Nixon uh, responded in the same way. So I think this is, uh, I, I see this as a consensus of the, there's, there are other aspects of the deep state, but the m- major part of it by far in, in the 1960s was the international faction, Wall Street, we often call it, in New York, the law firms, the banks, uh, etc., and uh, the, also the big foundations, like Ford Foundation and so on, hmm. uh, that there was a consensus for the war in 63. And now we come to the heart of your question. Uh, Kennedy, uh, who had allowed, he had been pressured in 61, and a bit reluctantly, uh, he was asked to do a number of things, but the two key ones were to send 8,000 troops in an advisory role to Vietnam and also to make a commitment that we would save, uh, we would not let Vietnam go communist. Well, he he acceded to the first request, the 8,000 troops. Actually, it was the last request. The first request was the commitment. They said uh, this was a, a report submitted to him that he should make this commitment and all the other steps should only be made if he was willing to make the commitment. Well, he did send the 8,000 troops, but he would not make the commitment. And by 1963, he was quite disillusioned by what was happening. He had sent uh, J.K. Galbraith to... He consulted with John Kenneth Galbraith, a Canadian economist at Harvard, and Galbraith uh, felt that it was time to start disengaging from Vietnam. And so Kennedy did a number of things in 63, which I think showed that he was uh, breaking free of this sort of military, industrial, financial consensus that we needed to have uh, to, to fight in Southeast Asia. We know that he'd authorized withdrawal plans from Vietnam on October 11th of 63. And uh, there was an, uh, quietly, the National Security Action Memorandum 273 was uh, put forward that overruled that decision, and it was approved, coincidentally, two days after Kennedy's assassination. So that's... All uh, of that's exactly right. Uh, Both, there were two, we call them NASAMs, two National Security Action Memoranda. The first one, you, uh, was NASAM 263, and that was October... And uh, that, that it called specifically the bulk of troops out by 65, but immediately you had to prepare to get a 1,000 troops out by the end of 1963 as the, as a first step. Now, NASM 273, uh, was, uh, it was drafted very uh, carefully so that it was not conspicuous what was happening. But it did talk about maintaining aid at the same uh, level as before, and it uh, quietly annulled the withdrawal of uh, the 1,000 troops. There had been, I think, 220 troops who had already been prepared to come home. By the way, that announcement 
it was publicly announced that there would be a withdrawal of a thousand troops, and it was announced on November 20th, which was two days before the assassination. And two days after the assassination, uh, it's quite clear that there was never, no, never anything after those 220 troops. So uh, that, that, that first step of getting the troops out was annulled. Now, this issue is often talked about in the wrong way. People say, well, we don't know what Kennedy would have done. That's not the question. He had authorized a withdrawal and the authorization, as you said, by NASM 273. It's dated November 26th, which is four days after the assassination. But the, the meeting that agreed to it was on November 24th, which was two days after was the day that Oswald was being shot in Dallas. So it was a very swift reversal. And uh, I think that uh, we can't just leave it at that. We have to remember that Kennedy had a, a larger sort of geostrategic uh, projection for the future so that he, we mustn't forget that on June the 10th, uh, he had made this um, important speech at American University in Washington, uh, where he, he said, we are all mortal, and that uh, we have to learn to live with Russia and not run the risk of, uh, have to calm down the risks of a nuclear confrontation that they had just been through. So th th he had a definite change of plan in Vietnam, which differed him from the uh, from from the Council on Foreign Relations, but uh, I think even more serious perhaps was this threat to take down the, the to d diminish the Cold War because after all America had been on a, a militarized economy since World War II and we're we're still in that militarized economy in 2019. What about Johnson? Because he's often uh, seen, even among those who question the official account of the Kennedy assassination, uh, he's seen or portrayed sometimes as a, a co-conspirator because he pushed the the land war. Uh, do you see him as uh, in, in that light, or, or is he, or, or do you have a more I don't know conciliatory attitude to, as far as Johnson's uh, going forward with this plan? Well, that's a very, very good question, and I, I may disappoint you when I tell you that my mind is open on that topic, because on the one hand, as you said, it is no doubt that uh, in uh, discussions inside the White House that Johnson had been a supporter of a more vigorous uh, uh, intervention in Vietnam, and uh, he made that very clear. And that we, for what we know of the meeting on Sunday the 24th, uh, it's quite clear that Johnson said he had uh, wanted... I, know, I don't think we heard him on the actual topic of withdrawal, but we did hear him saying that uh, he wanted a more vigorous effort. But I'm not sure that exactly means he wanted a hot war. And, uh, you know, there's... Uh, a book, this is a history book, uh, that there was a meeting in December when he said to the generals, you help me get re-elected in 64 and then I will give you your goddamn war. Something we haven't mentioned is that the Saigon government be began to get a very bad 
uh, image in the American media in 63 because of problems with the Buddhists who uh, were objecting to... Tien was a Catholic, his brother Nodin Nu, who ran the party, was a Catholic. Another brother was the Archbishop of Hue. They were, they were northern, uh, they were, they, they were from North Vietnam, a Catholic family, and the vast majority of the country was Buddhists, and the Buddhists were protesting in 63. One of them burned himself alive on television in protest. So, um, the Saigon government was uh, both in tr trouble domestically and also in trouble in American public opinion. And Johnson, I think, didn't want to be phased by that. But, uh, yes, I will say I'm clear that he wanted to sustain uh, a U.S. advisory role in Vietnam. I think that uh, he would have been for the Tonkin Gulf incidents, one, the first incident was real but trivial. It was U.S.-induced. It was a, pro, a U.S. provocation, no question. The so-called second Tonkin Gulf incident two days later when uh, PT boats are supposed to have attacked destroyers was nonsense from the beginning, and there was, uh, it was a genuine impression in the big Gulf of Tonkin on the destroyers, but in fact there, it, was, uh, it, it, it wasn't real. Um, and but he was very happy to have that. I think primarily he, you know, he ran as a peace candidate in order to get elected and defeat Goldwater, who was the overt hawk. Um, but I think his heart was really in his domestic program uh, that he wanted to be remembered favorably as the author of the Civil Rights Act, which he really basically was. Uh, I do not think. Uh, anybody in 63-64 believed that they were going to get into the kind of war that they did get into and uh, Johnson in particular I think would have this is all counter-historical but uh, I don't think he was eager to have this kind of the kind of war that ensued at all you use the term war conspiracy which you define as uh, the sustained resort to collusion and conspiracies unauthorized provocations and fraud by US personnel particularly intelligence personnel all with the aim of sustaining military commitments in Asia so I have to ask here uh, in 2019 what would you say is the state of the war conspiracy has it uh, uh, has it advanced? Uh, is it still with us in, in a different form? Or how, how would you uh, assa assess its status today? Well, I'm glad you asked that because uh, <laughs> you're quoting stuff that I wrote back in 1969-1970, and that was the germ of my thinking about deep politics, which then used, uh, induced me to start using in 2006 for America, the, the the term deep state, which is now taken off, taken off and is being used in ways I never intended. Um, I think what has evolved here is my own thinking. I wouldn't. Uh, the word conspiracy is so loaded with uh, connotations that uh, I don't mind being called a conspiracy theorist because yes, I do think Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. I do think 9/11 
was uh, a conspiracy, and I don't think it was a conspiracy of 19 Arabs. I think it was a higher-level conspiracy. Uh, of course, uh, th these things uh, can be debated, but in my book, The American Deep State, I try to give a picture of the evolution that you were asking me about through the years since, and I think that there was... I think the period 1960 to 1980 was a period of contention between all the presidents of that era and the uh, what I would call the deep state, and particularly the the CIA, and the which is a kind of uh, quasi. It's it, it's hard to characterize the CIA because it's not formally part of the constitutionally established government. But it is it ex exercises power both abroad and at home, which is uh, certainly competitive with the power of the Pentagon and the power of other State Department and so on. Um, and uh, Kennedy had trouble with the CIA after the Bay of Pigs. He didn't trust the CIA. Johnson had trouble with the Pentagon because they wanted a much they wanted to win and win quickly and although Johnson sent you know hundreds of thousands of troops to Vietnam in the end he was not uh, agreeing to the level they wanted in 68 they wanted i think 600,000 more troops and that was the year when everybody including the council on foreign relations said no enough is enough the, uh, the U.S. gold reserves are drying up. So uh, he said no, and uh, he couldn't run for a second term, which is how many incumbents haven't, have not run for a second term. Uh, it, it's, it's a very unusual thing. Nixon had terrible problems with the CIA and had to resign. Uh, Carter had terrible problems with the CIA, and it's, uh, from my perspective, quite clear that in uh, the so-called October Surprise problem that Carter had in 1969, 70, I mean, 79, 80, um, that uh, he was trying to get, get, you had a bunch of Americans who were being held hostage in Iran, and he was trying to get them out, and the Republicans were plotting behind his back with active CIA people helping them uh, to prevent the hostages coming home until Reagan was uh, became president. And they very spectacularly were released and came on the day of Reagan's inauguration in 1980. So all those presidents had problems. And since then, we have not seen that kind of problem, to, except maybe today. I, 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 Trump is something else. But up until Trump, uh, the, I would say essentially the, the deep state won, and uh, you did not have presidents uh, opposing the deep state. Uh, and again, I'm saying nothing about Trump, but up until Trump, that was the, 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 the end of that those two decades of trouble between the presidency and the deep state uh, with some pretty spectacular events, three major, four major political assassinations, uh, which is not normally the American way of running your politics, but was becoming 
almost predictable in that period. Uh, so uh, we still have the basic problems. We still have a deep state. We still have a military-industrial complex. We still have an economy which is uh, not a normal civil economy, but depends very much on the petrodollar, which needs U.S. forces abroad to enforce it, and uh, a military budgets and military expenditures, uh, which uh, oil and arms are America's chief exports. This this must change, but uh, it hasn't changed in the as I say, the only one who want, I think really wanted to change that was Kennedy. Professor Peter Dale Scott, it's been a tremendous privilege uh, and honor to have you on the show and uh, elaborate on, on these themes. Uh, um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I've been speaking with Professor Peter Dale Scott, author, former Canadian diplomat and English professor and leading scholar of the U.S. Deep State. He joined us from Berkeley. You can find a list of his writings at his site, www.peterdalescott.net. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The other major preoccupation of the Johnson presidency, besides Vietnam, was the domestic upheaval around civil rights and racial injustice in the United States. Were there significant synergies and correlations between the war abroad and the black freedom struggle at home? Joining us to address this question is Abayomi Azikiwe. He's the editor of Pan-African Newswire, the online press service designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. He's also a frequent contributor to Global Research. Welcome back to the Global Research News Hour, Abayomi. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now, you noted in a February 2018 article uh, that uh, not only did opposition to the war by leading figures within the civil rights and black nationalist movement far precede the better-known white student-led Vietnam War protests, but the more advanced elements enacted concrete actions in solidarity with North Vietnam and the NLF. Could you outline the common cause articulated by those elements at that time between the, uh, the Southern free freedom struggles in the United States and opposition to the war? First of all, it's important to note uh, that uh, people of African descent in the United States are an oppressed nation. Uh, the reason why uh, I have reached uh, this conclusion uh, is that uh, they uh, were never given full uh, citizenship inside the United States after the conclusion of the Civil War. There was the 1857 Dred Scott decision, uh, which said that um, the black man has no right that the white man is bound to respect, even after the period of Reconstruction and the uh, passage of numerous uh, constitutional amendments, uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, right along with um, Civil Rights Acts of 1866, uh, 1875, and so forth, uh, still, uh, within a matter of years, uh, African Americans were uh, being uh, subjected to conditions that are quite similar to slavery. So, in that sense, uh, the struggle here is a national liberation struggle, as well as a struggle for full equality, since people were born in the United States, 
even those who weren't born, who are naturalized citizens, at the same time still have a right uh, to fundamental uh, equality, uh, due process uh, before the um, uh, law, and um, actual legal representation. So in that sense, uh, there was a um, historic uh, synergy uh, between the struggle of the Vietnamese people and the African-American people. Historically, uh, Ho Chi Minh, <clears throat> the man who became Ho Chi Minh, uh, who led uh, the Vietnamese Revolution uh, for decades, uh, had spent time in the United States and had um, observed and even written on the uh, plight of the African-American people as early as the 1920s. So in this regard, you had people such as Malcolm X, uh, later uh, the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which put out probably the first statement within the civil rights movement opposing uh, U.S. intervention in Vietnam. And then, of course, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, who had issued their statement in January of 1966. And eventually, uh, by the following year, in 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King, who was president and co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, came out strongly against the war. Uh, so, yeah, these are foundational uh, events. Uh, that actually set the stage for a much broader opposition to the war uh, after 1967. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned Ho Chi Minh. Do you get the sense that his own involvement in the uh, the, the Vietnam resistance struggle uh, was fueled by what he saw in America? I mean, beyond this sort of generic uh, empathy for the victims of empire. Yes, I believe so. Uh, when he saw the depth of the oppression and brutality and repression, against the um, African-American people, of course, this uh, fueled uh, his commitment uh, to liberate uh, what was then known as Indochina. And uh, he went on uh, to uh, be involved in the formation of the uh, Indo-Chinese uh, Communist Party in the uh, early 1930s, uh, which eventually uh, became the uh, Vietnamese Communist Party and the Workers' Party of Vietnam. But... Um, Ho Chi Minh uh, was a central figure in the 20th century movement against imperialism. Uh, the fact that you had a small nation uh, like Vietnam that was able to organize uh, to defeat uh, French imperialism uh, during the mid-1950s and later uh, stood its ground against U.S. imperialism and defeated it in 1975. And today uh, is a country that is uh, sovereign, uh, that even uh, has uh, solicited uh, cooperation, uh, has been solicited uh, by the United States uh, in terms of, this, of its negotiations with the Democratic Republic of uh, Korea, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. So, yeah, I think uh, Ho Chi Minh's visit to the United States and uh, his uh, ongoing efforts in Vietnam, his response in the 1960s uh, to the uh, African-American uh, civil rights movement and liberation struggle, I think, uh, is clearly uh, interrelated. Now, you just also mentioned uh, the uh, opposition of Martin Luther King expressed in the 1967, which, as, as if memory serves, was very controversial. Support for the war early on was, was quite broad spread, especially after the Gulf of Tonkin incident. So could, could you maybe speak to the issue of, of whether the involvement of, of the more radical elements um, complicated in any way efforts to, to mobilize a broader anti-war movement? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, in uh, 1963, uh, President John F. Kennedy 
uh, was assassinated. Now, he had uh, made gestures or overtures to the civil rights movement. He had uh, introduced a civil rights bill, uh, which uh, got very little uh, traction uh, until the, the ascendancy of Lyndon Johnson after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, it is reported, and there is a national security uh, memorandum, uh, which suggests that uh, Kennedy was working towards a gradual withdrawal of, quote, advisors, unquote, from Vietnam, and this was in 1963. Uh, there were, I believe, uh, several thousand so-called advisors in Vietnam, but they were actually uh, there uh, to try to prop up uh, the regime uh, in Saigon. Uh, then, of course, after Kennedy's assassination, we saw, as you mentioned, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, which occurred around the time of the uh, Democratic National Convention in 1964. And then, uh, with the election of Lyndon Johnson uh, in November of 1964 by a landslide, uh, by March, uh, some uh, uh, 54 years ago this month, uh, there was a major escalation in uh, U.S. Uh, military deployments in Vietnam, and this coincided uh, with the Selma to Montgomery march, the whole push towards uh, universal suffrage in the United States, and uh, it was just a contradiction that could not be uh, sustained. Um, you had uh, urban rebellions that began uh, right after the signing of the Voting Rights Act in August of 1965 in Los Angeles, and then there was the uh, rebellions in 1966, 67, uh, which... Um, reached uh, well over 160 cities in 1967. So, yes, uh, Johnson uh, made the wrong decision to continue uh, the war in Vietnam, and it came at the expense of uh, any commitment to eliminate poverty or to ensure full civil rights for African Americans in the United States. Now, within the context of, of, of a revolutionary story, you wrote that the Black Panther Party leader, Bobby Seale, had attended a conference in Montreal, Quebec, in late 1968, where the NLF representatives uh, recognized the party as the vanguard of the revolutionary movement in the U.S. What role do you believe the, the Black Panther Party's uh, uh, and, and the NLF's uh, you know, solidarity played in uh, the eventual demise of the, the Black Panther Party at the hands of the FBI? Yeah, this was a uh, tremendous... Uh, story. Uh, it's documented in the uh, Black Panther newspaper uh, from um, that time period, late 1968, uh, early 1969. And uh, yes, um, the solidarity was extremely strong. Uh, Elders Cleaver, even though he became quite controversial, um, had uh, been in exile in Algeria. And there, uh, he had met the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese um, actually had turned over their embassy uh, to the Black Panther Party International section in 1969 during the Pan-African Cultural Festival in Algiers. Also, uh, Cleaver traveled uh, with a delegation from the United States while he was in exile in Algeria uh, to uh, Vietnam uh, in 1970, and uh, that was documented as well in the uh, Black Panther newspaper of the period. In 1969, uh, during the Chicago 8 trial, uh, these were eight people who were indicted uh, for uh, conspiring to disrupt the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Bobby Seale was one of the defendants. He was later removed uh, from the case, uh, bound and gagged, uh, tortured uh, right in the courtroom. 
And uh, during that period, uh, one of the other defendants, uh, Rennie Davis, uh, had gotten a communication from um, the uh, Democratic uh, People's Republic of Vietnam and the, um, the uh, National Liberation Front in the South, uh, indicating that uh, Vietnam was willing uh, to exchange uh, U.S. political prisoners for the release of Huey P. Newton, who was in jail in California, uh, connected with his conviction for the killing of a police officer in Oakland in 1967, and also Bobby Seale, who was also uh, imprisoned, uh, was on trial, and also facing charges uh, related uh, to uh, the killing of uh, Alex Rackley in uh, New Haven, Connecticut in 1969. So this shows the degree of uh, political clout that the Black Panther Party had during that period, the fact that the principal military enemy of the United States during that period, being uh, North Vietnam and the resistance in the South, offered to exchange uh, U.S. prisoners that they had captured on the battlefield uh, for the release of uh, leading members of the Black Panther Party. So uh, that in and of itself is a representation of how much uh, the Vietnamese identify with the Black Liberation Movement in the United States. Now, <clears throat> finally, we're, uh, of course, uh, living in a period now with the election of Trump. We're seeing uh, a heightened uh, hypervigilance around uh, racial inequality and racialized violence and oppression at the same time as uh, suggestions of increased militarism around the world. Do you believe that the, uh, the struggles of the 1960s uh, have any um, lessons for people organizing today? I think they have tremendous uh, lessons on the necessity for a national uh, organization that is um, anti-racist, uh, anti-capitalist, and anti-imperialist. Uh, also, uh, the fact that you have to take a principal position, uh, you have to move towards independent, uh, uh, radical, and revolutionary uh, politics and organizing. I think these are the lessons that will be well taken uh, here in the second decade of the, of the 21st century. We've seen uh, the rise of spontaneous movements, uh, in relationship to uh, police killings of African Americans. Uh, we've seen an uh, upsurge in the uh, low-wage uh, labor movement inside the United States. But these movements need to be informed uh, by a, a revolutionary uh, organizational force that can uh, not only determine uh, various positions, positions on a local national level, but also on an international level. And... Um, that is a lesson, I believe, of the uh, Black Panther Party and other revolutionary groups, such as the uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which started here in Detroit, and uh, the Republic of New Africa, which also started here in Detroit. Abiyomi Azikwiwe, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for your analysis. And thank you. We've been speaking with Abiyomi Azikiwe, editor of Pan-African Newswire. He joined us from Detroit. The escalation of the Vietnam War was enabled by the infamous Gulf of Tonkin incident, in which it was reported by the U.S. media that three North Vietnamese torpedo boats opened fire on two U.S. destroyers. Years later, the episode would be exposed as a hoax to fuel the outrage of the U.S. public and justify the U.S. military's war plans, including the 1965 ground war. A false flag, in other words. 
Barry Zwicker is a media critic and worked as a newspaper writer for the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, and the Detroit News, among other publications, during the Vietnam War period. Barry began to have a dissident view of the war after reviewing the writings of I.F. Stone in 1959 and 1960 while attending the University of Michigan. As both a writer for the Globe and an anti-war activist, he gained unique insights into how media worked to obscure the truth about U.S. state violence. The Global Research News Hour reached out to Barry to get his impressions of how media was reporting the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the war generally. Well, it, it was one of the worst false flags. Uh, the the uh, alleged Gulf of Tonkin incident. And uh, the, the reason uh, was, or, or is, that it was on the basis of this uh, alleged incident way off on the other side of the world that the U.S. president uh, introduced the Tonkin Gulf Resolution to the U.S. Senate. It all happened in a matter of about three days, and the U.S. Senate voted 88 to 2 in favor of that resolution was the basis of the whole U.S. war on Vietnam and all the lives that were lost and so forth thereafter. So this was, this was a tremendously significant false flag operation. And um, I, I might mention here, uh, and, and it's by way of explanation about what happened and what, why it was so important, is that uh, Benjamin Bradley, the legendary managing editor of the Washington Post for many years. It was, it was 32 years ago, actually, in 1987, that Bradley delivered the first James Cameron Memorial Lecture in London, England. Here's how Bradley actually opened that, that lecture. He says, I would like to talk about government lying, calculated lies, the willful deception of the public for political ends, especially under the guise of national security, and what an awful price we pay for such lies under any name, misinformation, disinformation, deceit, deception, or just plain dishonesty. And like I would add that in his, in his lecture, he never used the term false flag operations, but false flag operations just about cover all the words he used. And he went on to say, I'm not talking about little lies. He says, let's talk about the big lies, the lies that change history. And, of course, this is where the Tonkin Gulf uh, false flag operation uh, rises up in all its horror. And here's what, here's what Bradley said when he, was, when he blew the whistle on this alleged incident in his now famous lecture. And he pointed out, an August 1964 issue of Time magazine, and he quoted from that issue. These are the words from Time magazine. Through the darkness, from the west and south, the intruders boldly sped. There were at least six of them, Russian-designed Swato gunboats armed with 37mm and 28mm guns and P-4s at 952. They opened fire on the destroyers with automatic weapons, and this time from as close as 2,000 yards, the night 
glowed eerily with the nightmarish glare of air-dropped flares and boats' searchlights. Two of the enemy boats went down. Now that's Bradley quoting from Time magazine. Bradley goes on and says, that's the kind of vivid detail that the news magazines have made famous. I don't mean to single out time, Bradley said. On the same date, life said almost the same thing. And that week's issue of Newsweek had torpedoes whipping by, U.S. ships blazing out salvo after salvo of shelves. It had a PT boat bursting into flames. And then Bradley concludes, there was only one trouble. There was no battle. There was not a single intruder, never mind six of them. Never mind Russian-designed Swato gunboats armed with 37-millimeter and 28-millimeter guns. They never opened fire. They never sank. They never fired torpedoes. They never were. And it has taken 20 years for this truth to emerge. Mm. Thanks for that uh, that reference, Barry. Uh, just finally, uh, I-, I wanted to get your your take about the the, the broader tone of, of media coverage around the Vietnam War, in particular Canadian media coverage. There was in the Globe and Mail, as there had been in the New York Times, a lot of uh, a lot of reportage from Vietnam, which detailed some some brutalities. Um, and uh, but the thing is that the these details were never um, referred to in editorials as being horrible. They stuck with these generalities about communism was taking over uh, Asia and uh, and all that kind of ideological cant. The editorial slant and of course the omissions, the failure to really highlight these atrocities. Um, affected the whole of the public, so that those of us in the public, we had to get our information, yes, to some extent, from the newspapers, and to uh, a certain extent, from television and radio, and, but, but the, the newspapers continued just to be basically in favor of what we now know is, is American imperialism of the worst kind. So, so that was the general picture I saw. And I remember one time, my wife and I were marching in an anti-Vietnam War parade here in Toronto, and of course we ended up in front of the American consulate on University Avenue, and there were a lot of us. It was very peaceful, and there were a lot of us. And so I looked up at the, the steps at the front of the U.S. consulate, and there's a bunch of uh, American officials, and there are American security people, and there are Canadian policemen. And standing right there with them were two of my fellow Globe and Mail staffers chatting amiably with the American officials and the Canadian policemen and the American security people, my own fellow staff members. And that's bad enough, but what went through my mind right at the time, there's thousands of people down here. There's housewives, there's professors, there's children, there's auto mechanics, there's insurance salesmen, a lot of us. Why aren't they down here interviewing us? And uh, that really shook me, uh, and it showed me how my own mainstream medium, the Globe and Mail, 
was not performing properly. But to give the Gold Mill credit, I never ran into any problem because I was an anti-Vietnam War marcher. So I certainly give the Gold Mill credit for that. <laughs> but uh, certainly that's... Uh... An interesting comment on the, some of the, the systemic issues surrounding that. Uh, but uh, Barry Zwicker, we really appreciate your insights. Uh, thank you so much for checking in. Well, you're welcome. And I, I appreciated being asked because it made me delve further into my own memories and my own information uh, about that era. And it helps me in, in uh, writing my memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, look look forward to seeing those. We've been, speaking, <laughs> we've been speaking with Barry Zwicker, Toronto-based author and media critic. <music> professor Michelle Chosodovsky is an award-winning author, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa, and the founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization. He had a chance to visit Vietnam in the 1990s at the invitation of the Ministry of Agriculture. He relayed to this program his impressions of the country's lack of advancement two decades after the country's victory over the U.S. and charted the trajectory of the country's development to today. What struck me was, in fact, the, the total collapse of, uh, of the achievements of, um, of the socialist project, so, so to speak. Uh, uh, the... The wages were abysmally low. Um, health services had collapsed. And also there were secret negotiations taking place which were conditional to the normalization of U.S.-Vietnam um, uh, relations which pertained to issues of debt and macroeconomic reform. Essentially what they were doing was imposing the neoliberal agenda and also, and that's important, um, uh, demanding uh, war reparations, war reparations to the United States, not war reparations to Vietnam. And that took place in a very convoluted way. Now, I think um, more recently, if we look at, at the balance sheet of, of development since the mid-90s, uh, what is what is Vietnam today? Well, it's an impoverished country. It's, it's a cheap labor haven for the delocation of manufacturing. Uh, it is uh, an ally. It is an ally, a military ally of the United States. In other words, the United States goes in, commits war crimes, kills people, and then they insert Vietnam into their zone of influence. And... Uh, just to put it in perspective, the minimum wage in Vietnam today is 20 cents an hour. So that in effect, what has happened is that the whole project of post-colonial sovereignty um, has been, uh, has been uh, annulled or cancelled, uh, even though the Vietnam actually won that war. So there's the insertion of IMF structural adjustment programs that effectively conquered the, uh, the country. Well, yes, in, in, in stages, but there were debt negotiations which took place. Um, and uh, there was, as, as I mentioned, war reparations. Actually, it was via the Paris Club 
I had the opportunity of interviewing a, a, um, uh, a key personality whose name is Nguyen Xian On, who was economic advisor to the Prime Minister of South Vietnam, um, and uh, who was actually involved in the negotiations. He was a former IMF official, and he was also Minister of Finance uh, under the under the you know under the military government uh, during the you know during the war period, General Duong Van Minh. Um, and um, I got from the, this interview, I I got a perspective of how they manipulated and how they actually inserted um, Vietnam into the the nexus of debt. Uh, and uh, conditional lending on the part of the IMF and the World Bank. Okay. Um, now, briefly, if you could, um, do you see the uh, the Vietnam model, as you call it, uh, having relevance today in the era of Donald Trump? Well, you know, the, the Vietnam model is an acceptance of 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 the post-colonial, or in fact, neo-colonial. American model. You can see it in Southeast Asia. You can see it in Sub-Saharan Africa. What is it? It's the Philippines. It's uh, Cambodia. It's Vietnam. Uh, it's Indonesia. Impoverished populations uh, serving as cheap labor. That is the Vietnam model. Now, uh, this uh, notion of the Vietnam model has come to the forefront with the negotiations be- between Kim uh, uh, Jong-un and, and Donald Trump in, in Hanoi. Uh, but bear in mind, um, if we look at North Korea today, it has a higher standard of living in terms of, of, uh, of uh, basic indicators, literacy uh, and, uh, and uh, health, than the United States of America. And those are official figures uh, of the, the United Nations. It has a 99% literacy rate. The United States has 86%. It has full uh, coverage, uh, health coverage, universal health and, and, and education. Now, we may dislike or like or dislike North Korea, but they have achieved something which these other countries, these Vietnam model countries of Southeast Asia, have never reached, and that is a decent standard of living. Well, you can find Michelle Chusadovsky's article, Neoliberalism and the Vietnam Model, Who Won the Vietnam War, at the website globalresearch.ca. Michelle Chusadovsky, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. Thank you so much. We've been joined by Professor Michelle Chusadovsky. He is the uh, editor of Global Research and the... uh, founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.